Welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm so excited to introduce you all to Professor Brian Becker. How's it going, Brian? It's good, Dave. Thanks for having me on here. Yeah, it's a it's an honor. You know, I've I've really appreciated the work that you do. You're one of the few professors in the world today who takes the internet seriously. Yeah, well, I I find that there's um, spaces for conversation that can only really be had here. There are as much as a higher education is sort of promoted as a <laughs> as a place of open dialogue and um, willingness to push the boundaries, there's a, there's a strong conservative element that limits that conversation within the university structure. So I'm very excited to explore this avenue of, of, of YouTube and other online social media platforms to get ideas out there. Yeah. Are you familiar with Samuel Loncar by any chance? No, I'm not. So, so he's, uh, he teaches at Yale. Um, he is, he's younger. He, uh, he's written, he wrote a dissertation on being in time and, uh, he, he does really interesting videos about Plato and Aristotle and various thinkers outside of the phenomenological tradition. Um, and he talks about philosophy as, a as a kind of self psychotherapy or something. And, so it's, it's, you know, I really, really appreciate his general approach, but like you, he's, he's, he's basically, his mindset is, yeah, if I'm being paid to do this within an institution, um, and I can also put it out on the internet, like it, there's, there's something freer that you're about what you're able to do on the internet. But then more importantly, you're making this available to people who just don't have the access. And so, um, you know, some good examples, you've had a conversation with the Voy boys, the, they are one half of the young Jijikians. They are, they just changed their name to the vanishing mediators. And, uh, I think, uh, I think the, the, for us, like we all found out about you because Michael Downs, a warehouse worker in Raytown, Missouri is just a really big fan of your work and has been learning a lot of, you know, he, he got it between, uh, McGowan and your work. Like there's really no better crash course uh, from actual professors into Lacan. But um, I guess the, the reason that I'm so fascinated by your work is that, you know, it's almost like you're doing what Samuel Loncar is doing, but you're also doing what Tommy McGowan is doing. You're actually, you have a foot in both the academic world and the online world. And then you also have a foot in the world of psychoanalysis and phenomenology. And so uh, our first conversation, you know, I just had all kinds of questions for you about Husserl, intentionality, categorical intuition, the original a priori, these basic things that Heidegger thinks are like the most essential discoveries from the last hundred years of philosophy that are that make it possible to even do philosophy. He thinks it's, it's not even possible to do philosophy without these fundamental uh, contributions and discoveries on the part of phenomenology. But of course, intentionality, as he says, was already kind of around for Aristotle. They, they, they had some kind of a pre-theoretical consciousness of intentionality, as did the scholastics. But it's through Brentano that modernity becomes aware of intentionality. And then Husserl really brings it together and formalizes it and, and, and tries to approach the, the psyche and psychology 
in, a, in a more scientific attitude that rids it of scientism. And that's kind of what my understanding of it is. But I, I'm hoping that what you could do is, is just help us understand how intentionality is an intervention in the history of philosophy, how it is a critique of scientism, and more importantly, uh, its influence on Heidegger and Lacan, two very significant figures for this channel. But first, I'm just wondering, like, could you kind of, in your own words, tell, yeah, what is intentionality? How does it work? Yeah. What is that? Why does it matter? Yeah, thank you, Dave. And thank you for all that introduction. And um, it's been great to try to bring together psychoanalysis and and phenomenology. And that's been a sort of a centerpiece of my work. So I look forward to maybe thinking through that, as we, especially as we get to intentionality as it might relate to Freud and Lacan. Um, so for me, intentionality, if I, if I want to go back, there is inklings of that in Aristotle. I find that perhaps even a bigger influence or a, a link between the Greek thought and scholastic thought is Augustine. Um, Augustine had a tripartite theory of the mind that corresponded with a with the Trinity, with the three parts, three persons of the uh, of God, and those three included memory, intellect, and will. Or and another way of thinking about will is uh, love has been one way of he's thought of it, but also intentio, in, uh, which is sort of the Latin origin of the word intentionality. And interestingly, intentio was meant to be sort of correspond to the Holy Spirit. Each of the three parts of the mind corresponded with the three parts of uh, the Trinity. And intentio corresponded with the Holy Spirit. And in uh, theology, the here Holy Spirit is sort of the glue relational glue that binds together father and son and so why i i start with that is because i think that's a helpful metaphor for thinking about how uh husro in particular the brentano somewhat but husro thinks of intensio intentionality as a glue that binds together subject and object in an indissociable way um so that is sort of uh, a a sort of starting point and then we as you mentioned brentano really sort of reintroduces the topic to a modern audience and uh, probably through augustine i think he had a strong interest in uh scholastic theo uh, theology as well and um so he introduces the idea um and it, it has a lot of overlap and certainly a lot of influence with Husserl, but at least from Husserl's perspective, Brentano maintains a kind of uh, naturalistic, du dualistic attitude towards subject and object where it seems as though intentionality refers specifically to the acts of consciousness themselves. And in fact, uh, all in fact consciousness was defined as all the totality of these mental acts and that there can be a consciousness toward the object and then there's a self-consciousness of one's consciousness toward the object so a reflective um, uh, sort of attitude towards one's consciousness 
And so intentionality consisted of those components. And um, interestingly, he rejects any idea of the unconscious. The only, the only sort of way the unconscious makes sense to him is there are certain levels of intensity of these mental acts and the intensity of the object presentations to these mental acts. And the unconscious for him is just merely a low intensity presentation and act. Um, and uh, you'll and we'll see if we think about how this influences Freud and Husserl, both of whom uh, students of Brentano, and right. uh, and I, perhaps both of them influenced in a way that, in which they tried to uh, maybe extend some of his thought, but also were reacting against it. So that's they were uh, reacting against um, Brentano. At least to start. Against Brentano in certain ways, but in different ways. Yeah, we're working against Brentano, Freud, uh, rejecting the idea of uh, that there is no unconscious, um, that he that he thought that he could make the case that there is. And interestingly, perhaps even tries to extend the idea of intentionality to for there to be unconscious, a sort of unconscious intentionality. And he sort of makes this somewhat explicit in the psychopathology of everyday life where he uses the word intentionality seemingly under the influence of Brentano but then tries to think about it in terms of the unconscious okay yeah. so and then and then Husserl of course uh, he he rejects the idea that intentionality refers purely to mental acts but is a, like I mentioned about the intensio and Augustine, it's the glue that brings together the mental acts with the mental content. The mental acts and the mental content. Can we use a couple of concrete examples of, of mental acts and mental content and then why we need to even think about glue? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when I am relating to, uh, for example, my... Uh, let's see here, my my microphone right here, for example. Um, I could have an attitude, uh, or I can be looking at. I'm perceiving the the microphone, right? There, there's a mental act going on, and then there's the microphone as perceived, and so there's a relationship between the two that um, binds them, and the intentionality is what links them together. So intentionality includes the act of perceiving and the content of the perceived. And this is, the, uh, to, to say why this is important is, if you have, we have to think about the context in which this was being thought through, uh, where the, uh, this is coming in the aftermath of, of uh, Descartes and, and especially Kant, and there's these philosophical problems concerning the relationship between subject and object. This might seem like a passe uh, um, problem to many thinkers today, but it was, it was, and in some ways continues to be a pervasive issue, especially if you think about how the natural sciences uh, consider philosophically the relationship between subject and object it still is permeated with a kind of dualism so the idea is that i have these maybe intrinsic capacities to know and i can deploy the scientific method to suspend any particularity about myself so i can access what's outside my head 
which is the objective world out there, which I can study in a, in a, a relatively controlled manner. And that work, there's a certain, tech, there's a certain uh, practicality to that. But what Husserl says is that all of that, that whole procedure of science depends upon a more fundamental relationship with the world in which I'm, in which objects are not presented as independent from my consciousness, but they are given to me as perceived, as wanted, as desired, right? So there's no such thing as this pure access to the objective world outside of this relationship of intentionality. So really, it, it and, and so I can talk about, for example, scientific facts, and, and he, it certainly Husserl was, was not rejecting science, but, um, but the questions I ask, the kind of ways I engage in uh, my uh, scientific inquiries is informed by a, a, a prior relationship and, and prior embeddedness with the world that is always already there. And so what Husserl is interested in is suspending the issue of the objective world independent of consciousness, bracketing all that, uh, bracketing whether things out there truly exist, and just getting at the way in which things present themselves to me and how that pre those presentations get elicited in relationship to my attitudes or approach to those things. And so it's a really about reestablishing a the intimate relationship between the two. Right, and this is part of like the the a more scientific effort to rid psychology and philosophy of scientism. And what I mean by that is like to not borrow hand-me-down concepts from other niche fields that consciousness has opened up in inquiry and then take those concepts as metaphors that are then just projected into the psyche, right? And instead to found psychology philosophically on its own contents, really, but not just its contents in this purely descriptive way. I, I, part of the, the issue with talking about appearances, right, is people will think, oh, well, it, phenomenology is just describing things. Well, I mean, then everybody's always doing that, right? But the, the, mm -hmm. it's a, it's, it tries to become a discipline and, and, uh, and a method uh, and, a, and really a practice um, mm -hmm. for for living the examined life, uh, for, for learning how to bracket out presuppositions and think about what we see after we've done that. But more importantly, not just what do we see, but, and I was talking about this with Andrew and, and Nick last night, it's more about deducing from the way things do reveal themselves, deducing from the way that things are revealed, not things about those things, and not things about ourselves as subjects alone, but specifically, what can we deduce about the relationship between subject and object structurally, right? What structures can we deduce from the way that things appear? So to get at something deeper, and so this gets us to the kind of question, I guess, yeah, I think this was a question, uh, we kind of got to, we talked about this a little bit last night uh, in the conversation about being in time when we were talking about phenomenology. Um, this idea that, like, you know, Lacan, he works through the three major phases of the Borromean, he works through the three stages 
of the Bohemian Knot, the three registers of the Bohemian Knot through the three phases of his career, right? There's the imaginary period, the symbolic period, and the real uh, period. And, you know, each prior period is sublated into the next. So it's never like they're in isolation from one another, but it's a point of change in emphasis. And in that sense, he's sort of doing his own bracketing. Um, but the uh, accusation from psychoanalysis, uh, especially Lacanian psychoanalysis that doesn't think it has to take uh, phenomenology seriously, tends to be it's just in the imaginary. And I wonder what you think of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess it's good to start off that Lacan early on in his career seems to be much more indebted explicitly to phenomenology. In fact, his dissertation on uh, uh, which was on psychosis and a case study of uh, someone named Amy, um, he wanted to develop what he called a phenomenology of personality, in which he wanted to explore some of the intentional functions, uh, uh, do a sort of a, a genetic study, a study of the unfolding of intentional functions as they relate to the social human relationships and the social nature of the of the individual of the human person. So that was sort of where he got his start, and. Um, and certainly, and I do think there's probably some influence through, of, through uh, from Brentano to Freud to um, to Lacan, in the sense that Freud picked up the idea of a kind of intentionality that's unconscious, sort of a the, uh, a, a, a series of mental acts that contra that go that sometimes even contradict the conscious intentionality, and that idea although not i'm not i've never seen really formulated by lacan seems to permeate the psychoanalytic tradition um but there's a lot of problems <laughs> uh that lacan, that are embedded in at least lacan sees between the relationship of psychoanalysis and, Hus and the phenomenology developed by husserl so okay. uh, husserl for example is very much focus on the unity of experience, right? So there is very much a, um, um, a integrated unit of analysis, which is uh, the ego, which is consciousness, even though this is not re reducible to just inner, inner, inner acts, but, uh, but also to the contents that are out there in the world. Um, the problem of the unified nature of all this is um, something that I think Lacan thinks is inaccessible to to us because there is this break in consciousness because there is this split um, that and I think he as he's trying to see that he, as he's early on trying to, to do an analysis of uh, phenomenological analysis of uh, personality. Uh, through the and looking at the social, he finds that in some ways the internalization of the social through the ego ideal is, is a sort of um, is a basis for <laughs> it gives rise to what the ego is uh, in a sense the ego that Husserl talks about, but for but because of this because of the way in which the ego ideal is is internalized, it makes it impossible for 
the, the for oneself for the image of oneself to know to know where that comes from to be able to engage in some sort of philosophical analysis about the origins of this so i think and all, all that to say is that i that I think Lacan sees some major problems with Husserl's way of doing phenomenology in light of psychoanalysis, that the two are not, cannot be reconciled in, um, in, any, in any way that would be meaningful for him, at least uh, as he continues on in his thinking. That doesn't mean that phenomenology as a whole is rejected by him. Um, and I think Yes, I, the way you said about phenomenology being relegated to the level of the imaginary, I think does make a lot of sense. And every time he talks about uh, Merleau-Ponty, for example, and his notion of uh, phenomenology, it's always in the context of the imaginary. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a problem. This is my particular perspective where I don't necessarily see the imaginary as the bad guy in, in Lacan's theory. Uh, that as much work as we do to break through the, the calcifications of imaginary identi uh, identifications and fixations, we never leave the imaginary. That we always, when we're reflecting, we are always starting from the imaginary perspective and we never get out of it. Even as we try to reflect on the symbolic, we always reflect on the symbolic from the position of the imaginary. We always reflect on the real from the position of the imaginary, even as those are uh, giving rise to and shaping what our imaginary experiences are. Now, that's not something that a lot of Lacanians sort of how they talk about it, but I just, I feel like, I feel like there's a lot of attempts to get rid of or, or sort of say the imaginary is sort of the pathological dimension of the human person and we need to sort of, and we kind of, the, now, nowadays people quickly skip over that to look at what the symbolic is doing, the symbolic in relationship to the real. And mm -hmm. I feel like that misses the point that you've never actually escaped <laughs> the influence of the imaginary and that it begins there. And so in that sense, you could return to Husserl's phenomenology by uh, by like by beginning by reducing things to the imaginary and by seeing how this is the starting point for everything we begin with but then you would have to go beyond that um, beyond Husserl to show how the imaginary itself the ego itself is constituted by forces external to it um, that you can't just stay within consciousness if that's if that's what you do then you're then your fundamentals, there's a lot of problems with that. So I'd like to ask a few questions then about the difference between uh, first Husserl, sorry, first, yeah, Husserl and Freud's de departures from, from Brentano, but then also Heidegger and Lacan's departures from, from, uh, from Husserl. And obviously, uh, you, you basically just set up the case for Lacan's uh, departure uh, or critique of of Husserl. So then, um, my my big question would be Heidegger's, right? Um, mm -hmm. And then we can work backwards and get kind of bring it back around to uh, Freud and Husserl with Brentano. Because um, for me, it's just always been kind of like I know I have like this sense for what's going on, but when I read them, it's really hard to track. 
because it's they're all interpreted uh, or translated into uh, it is an interpretation, but they're all translated into English. How I'm reading them, and uh, they're translated by different people, and uh, and 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 so it's like there's it's hard. It's like okay, uh, are we talking about the same things? And also how charitable of a reader or was each of them to the other um, and uh, and you know how how inspired are they by how much you know how much actual fidelity do they they have to these original projects these are all kind of like the big questions for me but before we dive into that just for a note of clarification for anybody who's watching who's like imaginary what do you mean everything's imaginary like well how does it all start at the imaginary I know it's like the the language of the three registers can be uh, confusing at first, so let's at least just kind of staple down what we mean by the imaginary, as you know, in respect to uh, the the symbolic and the real. Um, I, I mean, would you basically say that the imaginary is not just things that you imagine, but also everything and how it appears? Yeah, I think that's that's not a bad starting point. I think the imaginary. It has a relationship to consciousness, though you don't want to equate the two. Um, it is also reflected in what we see in animals. So, the, uh, so when we talk about animal nature, animal, <laughs> animal relationships, this seems to be part of what the imaginary is. Um, it is the source of understanding and identifications and meaning. So, for example, right now I'm I'm talking to you. I'm I'm Brian Becker, right? I'm talking to Dave on Theory Underground. I I have a uh, some beliefs about what I think that means about my own name and what you and and who you are and who you're about. And I think I'm talking to you <laughs> right now. And I exactly. think I'm the one choosing the words I'm saying, and that there's a meaning behind them that I'm intending. All of that is imaginary. Okay. And so I it is um, the world of of experience, really um, experience that pretends it's unmediated often that it doesn't that there's no that there's no intersecting uh, invisible um, structures or phenomena that are guiding this process in ways that uh, uh, deviate from, you know, I'm, I'm one subject talking to another subject and right. with meanings behind it. Right. Which is the, you know, we, we atomize individuals into personalities that express identities mm -hmm. or belong to identity categories. And that's mm -hmm. about the extent of the, I guess, normie consciousness of, or the the default setting that we operate in, um, mm -hmm. there with with things like identity politics and social justice, people have a, a a window or a doorway into beginning to think a little bit more about symbolic relations. But it usually doesn't go very deep. It's usually kind of just like, oh, who gets to speak? Versus actually thinking about like things at a more elaborate or sophisticated level of, you know, structurally what's going on at the level of you know, the reproduction of society on a day-to-day -day basis and our functions in that reproduction uh, in both terms of production and, and uh, ideology, right? And so, yeah, yeah. yeah this, this is, and that's kind of the more Marxist approach. And so that's kind of, especially for the Marxist Lacanians, that's going to be 
of course there will be this emphasis on the symbolic and how it relates to the real. But your point is basically that without really uh, interrogating what we take for granted at the level of appearances uh, in a rigorous manner, um, we, we almost like stay inside of Plato's cave, right? Like the, you're not getting out of the first stage of appearances if, mm -hmm. if you've not done a phenomenological deconstruction of appearance itself. Is that, would you say, would you agree to that? I would say there's, there's a lot of truth to that. I, I would say that um, I would almost reverse the, if it was taking the metaphor, I almost reverse the relationship where the, the brightness of the, of the light of that shining, giving us this clear access to things is the imaginary and going into the darkness of the, of the cave is actually the direction we need to go. We are, <laughs> we are, the illusion is that we are, that we believe we're seeing truth for what it truly is. And maybe that's what you're doing when you're seeing the shadows on the wall. But we do have to, it, it, metaphor, the metaphor works better in my mind from a psychoanalytic perspective that we reverse the, the directionality of where we're going, where we got to see um, how it is that we construct these shadows <laughs> in the first place and, and dig deep. The one, the one thing I want to go, I also say, go back to is I think you in talking about identity politics and other kinds of uh, different ways of thinking about the imaginary. I think is is useful here um, because we you know there are there is the imaginary idea of unity wholeness that I I picture myself right but and as we see what Lacan shows is that um, there's a fra that the un the unity of the imaginary is fun is very tenuous and there's a fundamental fragmentation that's undergirding it that can come apart and at any point we can see this in dreams and i think uh, in seminar two uh, lacan does a good analysis of irma's injection and how there's this decomposition of the imaginary what i think uh, you see in some popularized forms of uh maybe identity politics or uh, post what sometimes goes under the word postmodernism uh, is this uh, uh, recognition of the fragmentation and uh, the celebration of it. Um, and, and so you see it's a, lot, it's a lot of forms of social constructionism, where it's like, for example, Kenneth Gergen, who's a psychologist, who talks a lot about the multiplicity of selves, the saturated self and the multiple self, and wants to celebrate this as a, an achievement of, of, uh, our, of our contemporary scene. And what, to me, what I hear in this is not a recognition of the symbolic which has a universal component to it, actually, but the um, uh, but a, a recognition of the de decomposition and the fr inherent fragmentation of the imaginary, and then and then a seeking to um, want to recognize a, a recognition of the fragmentation. So here's some fragments that aren't recognized. Here's some that are. We want to celebrate the fragmentation and I identify with a particular <laughs> fragment of this, uh, this, of this situation. And, um, so I think that's it, it, for me, it's a good illustration how the imaginary is still rich with analysis in terms of the way, different ways we hold it and how it, how it expresses itself in different groups.
so so the, the this this idea of wholeness and unity would you say that that's part of the 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 ideology of every average everydayness the the sort of what we take for granted at the level of appearances and that, that this is why you're saying that it's almost like the reversal of, of Plato's cave it's like everyone always feels like when they go outside when they go to work when they go to the grocery store they go to the park oh i've i've left the shadows i'm in the real world now right and uh mm-hmm. oh I, i'm having genuine authentic encounters with other people and other people are being authentically themselves and and this is the th- this is the sort of unified wholeness ideal yeah and mm-hmm. and you're saying that yeah. that 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 relates to the identity politics exactly how again i just want to hear it in another way perhaps because when when we recognize because there is an attempt to want to a standard way of thinking about things is looking at looking at them in in integrated holistic ways um that uh we are all the same underneath we have a we have a sense of what our humanity is and what it means to be human and right, these right, are right. imaginary constructions um and that there is a uh but if you dig dig just below the surface of our imaginary constructions we find that they are they're fragment fragmented so if you take a deconstructivist attitude toward our imaginary you can pick apart the in, the inconsistencies and the fragmentations that are that are always there right right um, and so that's that's sort of what i'm saying is that there is a there's an attempt to celebrate the fragmentation of of this thing we call the imaginary that we tend to that is at least traditionally been thought of as this providing us the sense of a predictable unified experience of reality um that there's one that there's that there's a meaning to life that there is a uh, that i have a soul or an identity that you have one too and even if you think differently than me as long as i recognize you as human i see that you have certain similarities as i do inherently and that there's this emphasis on on that and really in the in the rise of of the post-structuralist uh, post-modern thought is is an attempt to pull coals into that framework um, and uh, and you can see a politics i think you can see a politics that sort of corresponds with that philosophical movement yeah and this and this is kind of like uh one of the contradictions within uh movements for social justice as well as movements that say oh well those aren't really for social justice those are performative and uh, so like the the more anti-woke tendencies on the left or even the right sometimes um Mm -hmm. it seems like there's a contradiction on both sides between um one that says no you're you're a singular whole individual you're not your identity group category you're mm-hmm. part of humanity in this sort of holistic sense that that doesn't see difference, right? And so that mm-hmm. one, you know, that that can like erase obviously like a person where they're coming from, um, as opposed to, oh no, you are authentically and holistically this identity group category. You're the representative mm-hmm. of that, and you are you, you you're not you're an unsplit subject able to speak on behalf of everybody else in this unsplit grouping right so it seems mm-hmm. like 
it seems like both sides have an issue between people who've kind of come to a, a consciousness of the split as opposed mm-hmm. to uh, people who are, ha- that's not something that they've really worked through yet. Yeah. I mean, I just was listening to uh, uh, Y Theory uh, this this morning. You know, they had a recent uh, discussion on uh, Twitter, right? And, and why the left celebrates Twitter um, as being a voice of, uh, you know, in some ways it, it celebrates the the diversity of voices it gets people out it gives people uh, ability to express themselves and 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 get their message out there and the 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 um, uh, the idea is that there is this sort of uh, space of multiplicity that we can um, we can we can sort of uphold and uh, up until recently there were a lot on the left who sort of celebrated Twitter as that sort of thing. Uh, not recognizing, as I think uh, uh, the why um, uh, theory points out really nicely, is how there's a uh, there's a form <laughs> to this content. There is a there's a structure that's guiding this process of multiplicity, as there is with the 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 idea of a, of a unified voice of the of the conservative movement. And so, I think there's a in that example is a good good way of thinking that both groups are still operating at the imaginary uh, rather than wrecking and focused on content and that's a good way of thinking about it. imaginary is content right symbolic is form and what uh, what we often and we see different ways in which groups relate to the content and celebrate it or reject it because it's it's a threat to the to the uh, traditions that we hold dear that unify us. I'm going to have to check out that, that conversation. Yeah. We had Todd on yesterday to do a sort of tribute, uh, conversation that we did about, uh, Michael Downs and the dangerous maybe blog because Mikey can't attend this two day marathon and he can't attend the LAC conference, which is kicking off today. Um, so I'm guessing you're not attending either. No, no, unfortunately, I'm not. I'm not there. Hopefully, there hopefully we can all make it to the next one. You know, but mm-hmm. but no, no, Mikey's uh, you know obviously just destined to work himself to death unless hopefully we can uh, make the impossible possible. Um, and th- so that's what the hashtag Free Mikey campaign has been about. And so we brought on Todd to talk about that. And I didn't even realize, like, he actually organizes the whole thing, like the the whole LAC conference. Um, and so so hats off to him mm-hmm. for coming on stream in the middle of organizing a conference. But yeah. so you're saying he and Ryan had this whole conversation about Twitter and how the Twitter had been celebrated as a space of diversity. But the people representing groups in the discourse were always assuming this holistic kind of unified side in the in the duopoly of the culture war that they were representing or speaking on behalf of or following right and and that and they were basically trying to shatter that illusion i i well there was a part of it that i they were emphasizing that the right is sort of uh, a a sort of this is where I disagreed with them somewhat that the right is sort of the celebration of the particular of the of the multiple in a sense, uh, and that the 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 left is sort of 
um, representative of this attempt at the universal, um, but now recognizing that they are in, that in celebrating t Twitter, they are uh, they are in, re inadvertently re uh, sort of reinforcing the the right uh, and the and the sort of capitalist machine that is undergirding it. So I think uh, I was I was confused by that point um, in the in the uh, in the show because for me I've always seen the left as the sort of origin of the attempt at look uh, at multiplicity as uh, of celebrating fragmentation and difference um, and the right as being at least since when I was growing up was always the the voice of promoting the unity, even if it was fundamentally based in particularist ideologies, it was always this attempt to suggest the universal, to speak to the universal. And then what happened is the right co-opted <laughs> co that and, um, and then uh, has now, in a sense, express, is now currently expressing this sort of, uh, this attitude or this, that sort of multiplicity and celebration of, of particularity against um, against what is now interestingly the the, the left un uh, call for unity and universality so I think there's a very interesting uh, reversal and maybe they were speaking to the current context whereas I was sort of looking at it from a historical perspective that's but either way oh, God, no yeah I, I by other way we should get back to kind of the there's a sort of backlog of questions we're going to get to here uh, that were already kind of brought up, but but being proper Zizekians, we can't be dialectical without trying to take contradictions and and and, and flush them out and bring them to light and it, irreconcilable as they might be. So I, I at least want to maybe there's the, the, the this two day marathon is a sort of like. Here's a portal. Here's a portal. Here's a portal. These are portals into conversations and lines of thought and fields of discourse. And so there's a lot of stuff opening over the last, uh, you know, uh, 17 hours of streaming for this. Um, and, you know, like one of those was the contradiction between Nina Power and Daniel Tut. One of those is the potential con you know, the contradiction between Christine Luigi Soli and the Solitariat. Um, and these are all related to various issues that are ones that you can't really even talk about in most existing institutions, but that regular people want to think about and anybody who's got a sense of intellectual integrity and wants to try to understand the world is going to want to be able to talk about. And so in part, Theory Underground does hope to be able to to kind of make some of those things possible. So this, this, this disagreement then that you're proposing uh, with Todd um, this is fascinating to me because I, I, I did read his book, Enjoyment, Right and Left. Um, and he definitely has a, a historic, a historic, a, a historical case to be made. Um, I think that um, the, the thing I would like to do is leave it to him to clarify this. I'd love to bring you both into conversation someday. That would be like a, a dream come true. Um, would you be willing to do that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Cool. Uh, well, for now, I'll just say that, like, I think that the the the, the there's the, the the struggle for recognition um, starts out as a struggle to be included, to stop being excluded on the basis of identity, 
to stop being excluded on the basis of laws that force people into prison if their identity is gay, if their identity, or, oh, you can't drink from this water fountain or live in this neighborhood if you're black. Uh, so it starts with the, as W.E.B. Du Bois says, the, the struggle to abolish the color line. But then once those, those gains are, are achieved in the legal system, then the institutionalized representation of these groups uh, continue on, need funding, and become uh, advocates for the return of the color line by having that enshrined in law. So it starts out as a call to be included in the universal. And then once in the universal, it becomes, no, let's actually make law particularist, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah. I, I hope I'm doing Todd justice. I'll definitely send him this clip and, and be like, Todd, watch this and you know, let, let me know what you think. But I think that's basically I mean, where he's coming from. I would agree. I mean, that would I would agree with. Yes. Uh, if uh, the idea that there is this um, um, that the original call that this original impetus to uh, inclusion uh, it, it, that if you go back far enough is um, sort of the starting point. And then you have this, it, it, uh, as you talk about the graining in law, this uh, this particularity that actually reestablishes the segregations um, yeah. makes a lot of sense to me. I think where my, my I think my my thinking or my comments on this are more philosophical uh, in my thinking where I see, for example, individuals like um, Derrida, Deleuze, um, others who have are sort of on the side of the multiple um, I, who want to celebrate multiplicity as a fundamental starting point and that this is sort of this was something that was uh, strongly reacted to um, in uh, the more conservative uh, American philo philosophy scene. Uh, who didn't like this idea of this this kind of what seemed to them to be incoherent chaos and um, mysticism sort of right, uh, right, way of right. thinking. Well, and, and so I, I go ahead. My my background it would be more Emmanuel Levinas, but he's exactly the same in that. Well, Derrida is a Levinasian in his ethics, right? And so mm -hmm. this is the ethics of the other, the radically singular, irreducible other that is an infinity mm -hmm. that escapes our totalizations, right? And so it's like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, totality infinity being in time, Das Kapital. That's the three seminal and uh, like priority texts that I'm teaching in the first uh, year and a half of Theory Underground. And so mm -hmm. the, I just had to kind of get the plug for Emmanuel Levinas in there. As yeah. he's he's kind of the vanishing mediator as well because he he's the one who first in, you know translated Husserl into French in the first place. So, um, yeah. but yeah. anyway, he bring translated it, the uh, uh, the Cartesian meditations. He translated into French, and then it got translated into English from there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I visited his grave in France in November. Um, nice. It was. Uh, and it was we, I did like a like a graveside lecture that hasn't been published yet. But I did I did a whole yeah. tour tour of Europe, and oh, I nice. was only able to get to, I was only able to get to a few people because we had to make decisions. And so it's kind of crazy making a decision to 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 see Levinas and not be able to see Sartre, not be able to see Simone yeah. de Beauvoir. So anyway, that's why I thought I would bring him in here. But I think that there's a case to be made that Levinas 
Deleuze and Derrida, uh, as well as these other thinkers of difference, are all in their own singular, irreducible ways. Dealing with um, seeing the institutionalization that Todd is talking about, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and this idea that, um, you know, X, Y, or Z uh, representative speaks for the whole. Like we saw this in Bernie's, uh, Bernie versus Biden when it came to South Carolina, and everybody referred to Clyburn and Senator Clyburn and his position endorsement for, uh, for Biden. They saw that as the definitive conclusion that the black community likes Biden. And it's like, this is erasing Jesse Jackson. This is erasing mm-hmm. Nina Turner. This is erasing Killer Mike, Cornell West, right? So it's, it was like, you know, a way of gaslighting everybody about, mm-hmm. oh, there's this unified whole and Clyburn speaks for it. Um, and so it's, it's weird then how, yeah, there, there's a contradiction here and it feels like there's probably, it would be fruitful to, to, to kind of bring to bring you and Todd together, but also for you to be drawing on these thinkers. And then maybe like you, we can take our historical accounts and try to see what, what comes of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it may be just uh, where you draw the line historically and what sort of what you mean by these terms, right. That can also uh, be part of the, uh, this, the disagreement could be more semantic than anything. Um, but yeah, it'd be a great conversation and uh, we'd look forward to that. And, learning from Todd because I have a lot of respect for his, uh, his thought and his, his, his body of work. Uh, yeah, no, like I said, I see you both as the, the, the true renegade academics in a sense, like you've both got your feet in these worlds. You're making this accessible to everybody. And it's one of the most, it's one of the coolest things that's, that has come about in the last 10 years, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so bringing it back around though, um, are there any questions or threads that come to because I, I have my notes and I can bring them up. But but is there anything that you want to start off with bringing it back around to these these questions? Yeah. So I um wh- I think one thing I haven't really connected the dots yet is with Husserl and Heidegger and and what Heidegger does with intentionality. Is that uh, right, something right. you want to talk to? Well, so it, we we basically talked about. Uh, Lacan's critique of Husserl is that he doesn't get out of the, the imaginary. He's not really able to get into the symbolic. There are like these serious limitations. Then we also critique Lacanians who don't think that who think they don't need phenomenology because they think they can just kind of skip the deconstruction of immediacy. Um, so, I guess my my question then, a segue into this one, would be: Is that kind of where Heidegger is coming from? Uh, does he also think that? And, uh, and, and if, if not, then uh, what, what's his major departure? I think it would be different if we um, set, talked about early versus late Heidegger here. Um, I focus on early Heidegger because that's more, uh, I'm more knowledgeable about that, that phase. And I think what Heidegger does with Husserl, who in many ways it, it, his thought is a continuation of Husserl's, but a, but a, I think he sees it as a radicalization of of it. And even though the word intentionality doesn't come up a lot, the word care does. And care is not the same as intentionality, but it functions somewhat similarly, except that it is more of a it is 
more primordial than intentionality. Uh, so in care, I, there is this directedness towards things, uh, a directedness toward uh, beings in the world. Um, and there's different ways in which we uh, take care of things or we have concern for others. And we, through this process, bring into actuality certain possibilities. And of course, the most fundamental mode of care is a care toward the ultimate possibility, which is uh, one's death. Right. But it's but it's the kind of care that is involved with relating to one's death is um, one that doesn't actually make it actual, but actually. Uh, so when you may, when you bring something from act, from possibility to actuality, you reduce possibility most in most things you do. But when it comes to taking care and being ahead of oneself toward death, you actually enlarge possibility itself. You, you, you magnify it and, 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 and in your life and in, in the life of a Dasein. So I think uh, this care is the totality of Dasein and it's being in the world. So in many ways, you can see how it has this sort of similar structure to, to intentionality except that um, care is, is pre-reflective first off. So you, when you, we are, oh, whereas for Husro, you had to go through a method of bracketing and, and, um, and reduction to arrive at pure consciousness to describe and do a taxonomy of the various intentional acts and the relationship to content. For, for Heidegger, we're always already involved in the world and so and we and another way of saying that we always we always already care about our being and so this status of care is more fundamental than than intentionality which is sort of a a, a, der, a derivative uh, way of looking at the world it, it would be more a turning the world present to hand rather than ready to hand uh, and it's uh, right. so that deriv derivative mode of being is is trying Heidegger is trying to get at something even more fundamental than that, and so that's how I conceive of their relationship. And, and in fact, in general, the way I, the way you see a lot of philosophers relate to their uh, to their um, uh, press, uh, those who precede them. Is there? They often don't outright reject them. What they're always saying is that you see there's a lot of phenomenology, and I'm trying to get at something more primordial, more fundamental, um, not not call, not in terms of temporal, not in terms of like literal time or in terms of causality, but logically prior. Like that's something something that has to be there in order for you to then do this. So care has to care. Intentionality presupposes care. And that's so that's why Heidegger goes into this deeper place. And so that's that's how I think of the relationship between the two, or at least the Heidegger of being in time. And are you using uh, care and comportment synonymously here? Um, I would say comportment is a way of is is a mode of care, a way of being in the world. Um, often in reference to um readiness to handle. taking care of things okay what's that 
is it it's it's often in relation to readiness to hand as Ready, to i would present. say it's more of a readiness to hand um right i think i think merleau ponty does a lot more with this uh, than than heidegger um but right. uh but yeah i think it would be that would be the way of thinking of it for heidegger at least in being in time right so like comportment like that's kind of like the way you go about your day and the things that you do throughout your week uh, mm -hmm. and and circumspection, which is like your kind of awareness yeah. in that mode of comportment is part of average everydayness. And mm -hmm. and so this is the point of departure for Heidegger because he says like, OK, but we're not really thinking about the we're trying to get to pure consciousness, but we're not really what is the being of pure consciousness as opposed to the being of its objects and what the being of its intentionality? Well, well, what's the being of the being who's asking the question about all these kinds of right. beings? We have to inquire into the being of the being asking the questions before we right. can ever get to bigger questions about being themselves. Like his, because ultimately his big driving force is this question, what is being? People have lost that question. But first, we can't even talk about that because people aren't even really taking a step back from this split between the humanities and the natural sciences and saying, well, what is the being of the being for whose issue uh, or, or for, for whom being is an issue for it. Right. So it's like, yeah. our, and so this, this is, this is, this starting from that point is like starting at the level of, okay, well, let's start describing how humans actually operate. How do they actually think? How do they go about things? But then de doing deductions from this to get to, care and being unto death and yeah. right the is existentials that, is, mm -hmm. is this right so far yeah i would say that's that's correct that you're arriving at the existentials these sort of what, you, what are sort of like husserl's categorical intuitions um except that they are again more fundamental and um the one of the key things for uh heidegger is doing this uh deduction without any reference to consciousness, any reference to subjectivity. Dasein is not a subject. Dasein is a being in the world. <laughs> it is, a, a, you don't go internal with Heidegger. Um, you're not looking at things like, a, with, with Husserl you get this feeling of you're looking at this sort of, uh, this virtual screen of, of integrated reality that you want to describe. but. And so you're going on, you're almost looking at it from an inside perspective, whereas Heidegger really wants to look at things not as an internal subjective experience, but as an ontological reality, as an ontological uh, fact of that presupposes our ability to have consciousness uh, of, of our ability to have um, subjectivity. And in a sense, this would make Lacan closer to Heidegger uh, than than to Husserl because uh, I think that that movement of the what precedes consciousness is a as a movement that has an, a good a good influence on on Lacan. Absolutely, Adam Mad in the chat just said, but he's one of our moderators in the in the Zoom side as well. He said, by the way, Brian's channel is a profoundly useful resource, and then he shared the link. And honestly, I kind of. I think it was because we were kind of in a hurry, switching gears, things were kind of rushed, getting set up. I didn't actually say that, Brian, that your channel is called Singularity as Sublimity um, and that it's how we all know of you. And so, first of all, mm -hmm. let me put it up on the screen. Thanks for sharing that, Adam. Um, it's up on the screen now. 
And uh, so that was perfect, though. That was really good. And and so, yeah, getting out to those existentials, um, I used to kind of define when I'm trying to explain what an existential is. I think I might have said this in my thesis that an existential really like Heidegger doesn't want to call it a category. But because of that, we can also just say it's an existential category. So there are, you know, natural like the, the, the objects that exist in the mode of natural consciousness or the, the, the kinds of objects that exist that we try to analyze scientifically like these are the you know we we can we can develop uh, categories for thinking about them and and how we think about them how they're represented to consciousness or whatever those are categories though that deal with rocks and trees and potentially animals but uh, as soon as you start taking the categories that we've used to develop to, to think about geological rock formations for instance and then you start applying that shit onto consciousness it's like okay so we're doing some we're doing some kind of a reductionism here and so what he and what he wants to do is completely say all right we're gonna let the categories exist but let's let's develop these existentials but instead of calling them existential categories i've been thinking no they're just existential structures of our being in the world Mm -hmm. right is Mm -hmm. that with, would, would you do you prefer that language or, or do you have another way that you prefer to describe what an existential is as opposed to a natural category? I, I think I'm fine with categories. I think he even sort of uses it on occasion. He talks about them as being a prioris. So he, he's okay. uh, he's uh, except that this, these again a prioris are not mental. They're they're part of existence itself. I think you know if taking a categorical intuition with Husserl. You're like, I'm going to I'm going to look at the mental content in light of my mental acts and I'm going to uh, find some fundamental features of the object. So uh, always the example of the three dimensional physical object, you can talk about its extension in space and then no matter what, how I move it, what, what the technical word adumbrations, these outlines of the thing and perspectives, it's still space is a, an essential component of this object of a pen. So there we have this sort of universal category we've just identified. Now let's look at it from Heidegger's perspective. Heidegger wants to take a step back. It's like, okay, what is making all that possible? Well, uh, one is that I was thrown into a world, I'm in a world, (laughs) that my facticity, right? Um, that the fact I'm interested in even describing this suggests that I'm, I'm oriented toward a future, that I'm projecting possibilities that I want to actualize. And so that's another existential, right? So right. there's, um, and that I could even, why would I even want to describe this in the first place? Because I care, because I have some sort of concern or care for something that actually makes me want to describe its essential features. So. Right. Everything I do from a uh, from Husserl's perspective is just captured within a wider lens. Just like like Newtonian mechanics wasn't rejected for the Einstein relativity theory of relativity, it was contextualized within a wider spectrum of thinking. And I see that kind of way of that movement you see in, in physics. You see, I think, in the movement from Husserl to Heidegger. Right. This is why I think towards the end of uh, chapter two of history of the concept of time. He says that, uh, I, I, he, he says in, in a lot of ways, I am still a student of 
of Husserl or, or something along those lines that kind of gets at that basic. Maybe mm-hmm. he doesn't quite put it in that in that way, but that's I do believe that's what he's getting at. He, but but like all thinkers worth reading and rereading and rereading, he isn't just critiquing on the basis of oh I disagree with this and that and the other thing and that's it. Mm-hmm. No, he's he wants to do an imminent critique, which is to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, taking most seriously the values, principles, and methodology of his master and taking it to its logical conclusion, showing how mm-hmm. the, this was a great first attempt, right? But also what he says is that Husserl has read my, some of my critiques and I've uh, we've been in dialogue and he knows what I'm saying at this lecture. And so I'm not current with his thought because he's still working on his project. And so, mm-hmm. um, and that's ultimately the, the, the most interesting thing about thinking about the ways that Sartre, Emmanuel Levinas, Merleau-Ponty, Heidegger, they all, you know, uh, supersede uh, uh, Husserl, but he, he didn't stop existing. He, he, he was kind of living through it all. And these were his students and he kept writing, he kept thinking. And so, um, you know, he, he, I guess that's kind of my, 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 my question then would be what, what are you, so in the way that you're, you're more familiar with early Heidegger, are you only really familiar with early Husserl or are you able to kind of, have you kind of really gone into like his later work and can you kind of say how his, his work develops as a response to these kinds of critiques? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, the uh, the Cartesian Meditations, I think, was written after being in time, I believe. Um, and certainly, all, even his early work, he in in like the uh, logical investigations, he's making a lot of revisions and comments in light of Heidegger. Um, but really, the uh, um, uh, the, the crisis, uh, uh, um, the one of his final books that was published after he passed. Uh, really was an attempt to think his phenomenology broader and um, and more of a contextualist approach to phenomenology. And so I think th- it's very hard to say Husserl thinks this when there's so many different Husserls across the periods of his career. He was all every every work is an introduction to, to phenomenology, but it's always done from a different vantage point. And in the crisis, you see this attempt to take into account, I think, more seriously uh, the notion of horizons and to, and um, and something that actually Heidegger picks up a lot on, the notion of horizon. And, uh, and so I think you see that response. I'm not familiar enough to say specifically how he develops it there. I'd, I'd have to take a look at that work again. For sure. But... Um, but we're always finding new stuff in Husserl, like in all the unpublished manuscripts, uh, finding lots of very uh, nuanced and developed ideas that diverge from the standard story of who of what Husserl thought. Right. Um, like, for example, in his in some of these manuscripts, you have a lot. You find some writings on this notion of drive intentionality. The idea that there was that he, there was more uh, recognition of a pre-conscious reality. I mean, he already has some of this in this idea of this passive genesis uh, and the idea of 
uh, hyletic data, the sensory materiality of data that, and uh, habits of, of the self that precede the emergence of consciousness. And he develops this a little bit more in his notion of drive intentionality. And, um, and certainly it was not the full-blown development of an unconscious, but it opened the door for more potential intersections with psychoanalysis than you would think given the standard telling of Husserl in his most famous text. That's fascinating. Yeah, I did not know that. And so that then, so that just means that he, he, he was at least thinking along these lines somewhat that these lines that, uh, Freud's sort of departure or, or, uh, expansion pack, uh, on, on, uh, Brentano, right. The, the expansion mm -hmm. pack being, um, it's not all conscious, man. It's not all mm -hmm. conscious. Uh, there's, there's this precog, this preconscious element. And so obviously for Freud, he's going to be, he's the, he's exploring the frontier of the unconscious. And so, so he still, and this, I feel like that's a natural segue into bringing it back around then to the the Husserl and 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 Freudian um, debt and and then deviations from from Brentano, right? Um, mm -hmm. So so then I guess my basic uh, question from earlier that I'd raised, the, uh, hoping we'd get to it: Husserl versus Freud in relation to Brentano, um, do they keep the same? Or did you think that they are inheriting the same inspiration, attitude, sort of uh, attitude as far as like a methodological approach to psychical phenomenon? Do they all inherit that stuff, but then go in different directions in other ways? Or do they inherit different things? Yeah. Well, first off, Brentano, I guess, was a very uh, seductive uh professor. He very, uh, he really drew Freud in. He actually, Freud got convinced he wanted to do philosophy after, after, uh, studying a little bit with Brentano. Um, I think, uh, and Husserl had similar experiences. Um, so, but I think that they both reject different aspects of Brentano and go in different directions with it. I mean, think about Husserl is, very, uh, he's reacting to, he's thinking about the uh, um, <clears throat> uh, logic and mathematics, and he's why, and, and so some of his earliest work was on geometry. So he's very interested in these, uh, in establishing the, the truth claims concerning mathematics early on. Whereas Freud's concerns are much more in, in related to the natural sciences, uh, medicine, neurology, he ends up becoming, I think, a neurologist. Um, and so wanting to take what Brentano developed or, or like, or, or reacting to it and thinking about it in naturalistic terms rather than purely philosophical. So I, I think they, again, they both, they both reject his idea, his formulation of intentionality and seemingly both reject his view of the unconscious. Uh, though it's less explicit in Husserl, uh, but then they go on what seems to be very different directions um, under very different influences and different questions they're asking. This is awesome. Yeah, I really, I really appreciate that you're able to kind of speak to this because the discovery on my part that Freud was also there, like 
maybe not shoulder to shoulder with Husserl. Like maybe they weren't, you know, going for coffee afterwards or, you know, looking at each other's notes or, but they were, I mean, yeah, they were kind of around in the same time and they were influenced by mm -hmm. the same professor and psychoanalysis and phenomenology are so fundamental to Slavoj Žižek and the Slovenian circle, so fundamental to uh, really any kind of push towards a, a more sophisticated theory of what it is to be a human in the world, what's going on in the world, and how we might want to change it. Um, and so kind of to that end, there is, I, in the beginning, I think I had kind of touched on the, the first thing I'd said was, you know, uh, philosophy of science and scientism and, and like, how is this also, how is intentionality itself just in Husserl, but also obviously in these other thinkers in their various ways, a fundamental intervention in the way that we think about um, um, science. Yeah, that's the yeah. that's the main that's the main kind of question is like, because mm -hmm. um, I I think that you said like today we we take this subject object dichotomy a lot less seriously we don't take a hard dualism so seriously, but also at the level of just how we act and tend to assume things we do though yeah. and at yes. the level of at the level of science and its role in understanding um even though people know it's it's it develops specific tools for specific fields for understanding specific types of entities there's still a lot of scientism which is to say that people will take those singular tools for specific projects and then just totalize those into explaining everything right mm -hmm. and so um yeah, maybe you could speak to the historical crisis of the European sciences that they're responding to, and mm -hmm. and uh, and and how and how this carries forward to today. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like what Zizek says about uh, you know, it doesn't really matter if you uh, don't believe in money as a inherent value or. If you don't believe in Santa, I like the example of you don't believe in uh, Santa Claus if your children. Uh, you you act as if Santa Claus is real because you are expected to put your children and 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 you do go through the whole thing. So really, there's no difference. It doesn't matter whether you believe in dualism or not. We're all most of us are dualists because we're living in the and breathing in science, which is which imbibes in this understanding. And so anytime there's an appeal to science as the arbiter of truth, and I'm again I'm. I've been a scientist. I've conducted scientific research before in my various lives, and I, I have a lot of good things to say about it. But it's not fundamental. It can't. There are limits to it, and it often doesn't recognize those limits, and and it, it imputes this dualism into our thinking uh, in ways that we don't recognize. So, and I think uh, you know, Husserl saw that. Husserl saw that there was this problem crisis in science and here's the thing is that it because science has this philosophical problem that it doesn't recognize because it thinks it's not philosophical <laughs> uh, it is vulnerable to uh, to being discredited uh, in various ways and I think we're seeing this right now where you know scientists are no longer really taken seriously because uh, you know, they 
you can you can point out the philosophical inadequacies and the and the you know biases and all those things that are in that are involved in science, and for that reason, uh, you know it's it's hard for many now to take seriously scientists, which is too bad because uh, they're the 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 truths they discover um, are still valid even if their philosophical methods are. Are, or the philosophical foundation is, is faulty, as long as you keep it contained within the, the limits of what science can say. So uh, I think Husserl's concern about science, uh, it, well, of course his meaning of science was broader than just the natural sciences, the empirical sciences, but I think he included that as wanting to rescue these fields um, by placing them on some firmer basis. And I think that problem that he faced then the crisis uh, of European science is the sort of the fruition of that we're seeing uh, today. I guess the critical question I want to raise then is the one that people coming into this stream, because I do have Marxists on, uh, mm. as well, and because Marx is an essential thinker for me, mm -hmm. is going to be the question of materialism versus idealism, as well as folks who might be coming in who are more like, oh, they got into intellectual things because they watched Neil deGrasse Tyson on Joe Rogan, and, you know, like, they, they understand that Neil deGrasse Tyson says that, as Adam Madge just shared in the chat, uh, Neil deGrasse, he, quote, philosophy is useless and that's an objective fact, right? Stephen Hawking said something serious, uh, similar uh, about, you know, nothing he's ever done relied on philosophy of science, or maybe that was Lawrence Krauss. They've both said negative things about philosophy and I really can't blame them. I've been to a lot of philosophy conferences and so I don't blame them for going there and being like, well, this is useless, mm -hmm. but, you know, they're not engaging with the primary text themselves like Einstein was. Right. Like Einstein was critical of Bertrand Russell for not being metaphysical enough. Right. Uh, and I, I read a, read a bunch of his private journal notes and stuff like that one time in a library, just pulled it off the shelf and was reading. And there he was talking about how Bertrand Russell's too like he throws out Kant too quick. He doesn't take seriously enough philosophy in this like broader sense. So basically the, the that. That's not so much materialism versus idealism, but it's kind of related because it's a bit more kind of rationalism versus empiricism, like these kind of mm -hmm. classical debates that some people feel have been settled by the advances of the sciences. And so um, I don't know if you'll want to deal with them both at the same time or kind of separately, um, but it's one of the things that I'm always wondering about. So if you can shed any illumination on that, that would be awesome. So shed light on like say the Marcus Marxist critique of idealism that's in phenomenology and how that is that is that the question specifically? Well, for that question, then I would just I would I would I should I should add, like Lukash in the Destruction of Reason thinks that these are all fundamentally irrational, um, petty bourgeois or or or, or bourgeois in general. Um, you know, reflective ideologies that have no real interest in world change and are 
don't think about the productive base uh, in society that sets the parameters for the 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 superstructure ideology the uh, the the stuff that we take for granted when we just go mm-hmm. about our our normal lives right and so um, this kind of uh, material emphasis is one that has through people like Lukacs uh, today through people like Daniel Tut at Zero Books um, or uh, Chris Catrone at Platypus Affiliated Society. They're they kind of they you know they they think that these these are der- they think phenomenology and psychoanalysis are derivative, mostly idealist, petty bourgeois tendencies, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, yeah. I think uh, I would agree with them in part. <laughs> I mean, there I think there is a they these fields definitely have that tendency to become idealist and Husserl claimed himself as an idealist and he that was his most critiqued as usually his most critiqued facet um i think uh it's not so neat of a division uh, in some thinkers when you think about idealism versus the realism or material the materialist uh perspective i think there's been uh, movements in both phenomenology and uh, as, you know we've seen in psychoanalysis uh, a materialist move um to show how they're, they're, we start off, you know, there is this materialism that's sort of a base, and and um, and the philosophizing tries to start from that point. Um, but if the if the issue is, uh, I don't think that most of these people are thinking that theory itself is problematic, um, but more so the mode of theorizing that it's not grounded in in a materialism. Um, but uh, I I guess the one thing I would say to this this issue is that there I would want to respect the dialectical relationship between thinking and action um, theory and praxis right yeah um, that we um, that if you if you cut those off from each other then you are um, you're in trouble <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna you're going to undermine your own aims ultimately and um and so a, a praxis without reflective theory is going to repeat the ideologies that it thinks is resisting and theories that do not see themselves grounded in some kind of materialist way of of uh thinking um will often form the uh, be their own forms of ideology. So rather than seeing uh, rather than seeing them at odds, I see them in a dialectical tension. But that also means sometimes you can't always address. You have to sometimes sort of bracket one to look at another. And there's a. There, it's not just you have to look at both at the same time. Or uh, you know, and you do have to understand that. I think I'm very big believer in, in an appreciation and familiarity with the history of thought. Uh, because what you see is that a lot of times people are, are creating these theories or, or promoting perspectives that have been already put out there in, in the history of philosophy. But because we're so present oriented, we, we don't really recognize the context in which these 
these thoughts emerge. And it can deep, you know, so if it comes to political action and, and revolutionary change, I think those movements are enlivened by a more reflective stance, a more critical stance uh, towards, um, towards themselves, towards the movement. And so that, I guess that would be a sort of tentative sort of way of thinking about it. Uh, that's not going to satisfy any any Marxist who uh, are reject psychoanalysis and, and philosophy in general, but um, that would be my my approach to it. Yeah, my tendency is to say I don't want to satisfy or generally genuinely like uh, generally try to orchestrate everything, assuming an audience of people who don't see the value of philosophy, um, mm -hmm. but what is quite common is that someone coming into it um, from that background still has this oversimplified worldview Marxist big other that they're trying to, they want to be able to still answer to it on behalf mm -hmm. of their interest in philosophy. So they're interested in mm -hmm. philosophy, but they're, but this big other, so that it's, it's never like reaching out to me and saying, Dave, just like, why do you do this? I think that this person's a petty bourgeois idealist. It's always like, you know, people say and people aren't confused, you know, people aren't convinced. And, you know, mm -hmm. here's some, here's some articles that some people made somewhere. And like, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, I, those articles are written for a predetermined marketing demographic of people whose identities are curated around, you know, being subscribers to, this specific, you know, hashtag or whatever. And for me, it's like, I, I, I hope that we will always be able to uh, bring in people who come from this background. Um, but at the same time, I, I said it yesterday, um, I, w I want I want to have some token worldview Marxists. I don't want to have, I don't, I don't want to have uh, like, uh, uh, be overrepresented by anybody from any like hardline ideology it's like I like I like the ideological diversity, and so mm -hmm. as far as the the uh, young atheist uh, or the new atheist, I should say that was a slip. The the new atheist, <laughs> as far as the new atheist, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Richard Dawkins, Lawrence Krauss, even to some degree Hawkins, uh, Hitchens, whatever. Um, your answer would be the same. Or might it be something a little different for them? Well, my answer to my response to, to that perspective is um, to be more, I would ask them to be more scientific, <laughs> to be more consistent within their own methods because they're constantly violating the, the, um, the scientific method and the limits of science by saying the things they say by turning it into a, a worldview, a philosophical system. Um, and um, so that would be one one thing is uh, I want them, you know, I want the scientists to be more sci scientific. And then the other thing is, um, you know, and this, this would never go well with them, but I, but I, if you want to, I don't know if you want to reduce truth to facts, right? To empirical facts, um, there are 
the example that I often would think of when I watch these things, I was like, what would I say? It's like when I, for example, when I'm in a relationship with my, my wife, I was first dating her. Um, at some point, I didn't, and I didn't know if I was going to, if we were going to get married. I didn't know if she loved me. I didn't know. I didn't know. I, I didn't, we were learning that, right? One, one thing I had to do to discover that truth was to, in a sense, to make the Kierkegaardian leap of faith to, to proclaim love, to be able to, to discover what is lovable, that there was a, there was a truth there that had more meaning in my life than a lot of other things uh, that I've, I've encountered uh, that I cannot simply reduce to, um, to the empirical sciences. And they might be said, that's fine. That's, that's not truth. That's just, you know, in a subjective, good old fashioned love. And that's not, that's, that's fine. But to me, that, is central to our human experience and i operate out of that world and i approach data from that from that world in which i love and i hate and i and i and i and truth reveals itself to me in all sorts of ways that um cannot be accessible through empirical measurement and i'm living and imbibing in that world and then i come to data from that and i can't suspect I, there's no way you can truly suspend all that. So I think there are truths that you that have to be recognized that are, are so central that we um, that we uh, um, that we can't reduce to those things. And I and again, I don't think that would go over well, but um, there, that's an example for me <laughs> of uh, the limits of science and the question of truth. You can also apply it to literature, right? So, I mean, there are truths in literature that, and the ways of arriving at the, and a lot of this is questions of meaning, right? And this is where science thinks they can go from, um, from facts to meaning, uh, and in this sort of nice, neat way. Like, I, I, it's like when I discovered the universe is so infinite, and I, you know, that my cells will be will be eternal they'll be there for billions of years and i get some con consolidation out of that like uh i, I feel uh i feel warm and fuzzy inside and i was like what the hell? why the hell would you <laughs> what does the one have to do with the other like why do you, you know, why how are you deriving that meaning out of those that that data uh, of physics and so it's always a strange thing to see scientists try to try to invent narratives of me meaningful narratives out of the data in ways that are quite creative but uh demonstrates the 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 limits of their of their methods do you think that this is kind of a a uh it, it seems like it's it's ideology in a sense right um and it's 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 an it's uh it seems like a lot of Philosophical positions, determinism versus free will, uh, mm -hmm. materialism versus idealism, empiricism versus rationalism, um, are often like rooted in a very strong desire for it to be a certain way. Like for Samuel, mm -hmm. for uh, for Sam Harris, uh, he really needs determinism to be true. Psychologically speaking, this guy is really trying to hold it together, and things will only 
he can only really hold it together if the universe is like a big clock. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it comes through in his affect, even with his spiritual turn about meditation and, and waking up and being 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 mindful. And but it's all it all seems it, it seems if you read his book about determinism through that that mindfulness kind of like his therapism approach, it's like, yeah, it's all been copology for him. Right. It's ideology to help him cope with a terrifying universe with a lot of unknowns and a lot of, uh, we would say, room for radical freedom created by the split in subjectivity, created by the split between our rational ego and and drive. Yeah. And I think it that's where I I find something useful in in listening to him or other thinkers. And because there's a truth there that's being revealed beneath their words, right? It's like, this is where you look for the symbolic, uh, you you look for the literal language and and try to bypass the meanings of what they intend to say. And you get at this deeper structure that's underneath it um, that's very fascinating and very, I think gives us a sort of access to something even truer than what they're they're actually saying, and so I like I I can appreciate it for their accidental stumbling upon <laughs> a, a deep a profound truth that they're not intending to communicate, but they are, um, and so I think it's a good example, and and it, it, it and we're all doing. It. I mean, I, this is where like I. We're all we're all we're all doing this. I have my own ideologies and I have my own uh, culpologies, right? Uh, and um, and I, I I try to be reflected towards them. I try to be di- uh, dialectical with them and engaging them with other ways of thinking and, and questioning and critique. But at the end of the day, we are all we are all still in the, fundamentally in the imaginary, <laughs> and and we have to uh, we operate in a world where, you know. In, in, in the openness and indeterminateness of thought, it ultimately does collapse into action and into and and uh, activity. And that action and activity is surrounded by a halo of imaginary constructions and meanings that we have to, uh, we have to rely on to get by. And, and, and again, I don't even think that that means they're false or true. I don't think those categories m- mean a lot. We have to see how they do function for us. Um, but uh, they're inevitable. This is why I always think the imaginary is inescapable. Um, but we also have to rec- we have to find a way of recognizing that we are caught up in imagine imaginary identifications, whether uh, and narr- mar- imaginary narratives, right? Whether it's a, this narrative based in science, based in religion, based on uh, Marxism, and and try to to see how that is functioning for us and how that is functioning in relationship to other ideologies, other symbolic networks that are at play within the larger societal context we find ourselves in. That seems to me like a a perfect quilting point really for the whole conversation because I had started out by saying it's about a scientific attitude that is against scientism and really you've hit on so much you've brought so much together and uh i've 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 got your your channel back up here and we'll keep it up for the duration of the conversation people really i hope that you go subscribe i will share the link in the chat 
Um, and then I guess my final question, my final question, is for never, I'll never have a final question. But for now, um, I'd originally said we'd talk for 45 minutes and then go to Q&A. Instead, I think we talked for probably an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm at this point now where it's like I, I feel obligated to open the door here so you can get back to your life. Um, but also uh, there are a couple of people on the, the Zoom chat side here. I think we've got... Adam and Nance, uh, they've been moderators in the in the the live chat, so they've been following any conversation in there, and they can relay questions if you have time to hear any. I do. I, I have a lecture prep I have to do for a class at one fifteen, but I can stay for another fifteen twenty minutes uh, to like to address some of the questions. That's awesome! Fantastic. Okay, um, Adam, Nance, if you're both there, go ahead and reveal yourselves, introduce yourselves, um, and, uh, and, and yeah, if you have personal questions or stuff from the chat that you would like to share out or just you know, get his, uh, his, his response to, share, welcome. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, both of you, uh, fantastic conversation. Uh, not so much uh, movement in the chats by way of questions, uh, but I did want to uh, call out, uh, we got the Dangerous Maybe hanging out, uh, pointing out as well how cool this discussion is. And huge. he's a huge fan of uh, Brian's channel, as I believe most of us are. Um, and I'm a I've huge fan of his, his work. He's, uh, I've been very grateful for his support throughout the, the time uh, I've been having this channel. Uh, it's it's uh, amazing to have this convergence of of minds in in one place, kind of out of nowhere for me. Um, I, I do have a personal question. Um, probably probably make uh, our man Dave roll his eyes a little bit because I, I harp on this uh, particular thinker a bit. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with a professor out of Utah, uh, T. Nguyen, works in aesthetics, uh, social epistemology, and uh, he's he's got a, a paper that I'm really interested in. Uh, Twitter, uh, the gamification of Twitter, how, how Twitter gamifies communication. And I kind of wanted to get a, a kind of a, I don't know, your Lacanian perspective on the, you know, impact on discourse when we have a society which largely conduct its, conducts its discourse through a, an inherently, I don't know, a gamified medium where where the true purpose of conversation seems to have been usurped by maybe optimization for uh, likes and exposure and such. I kind of wanted to get your perspective on that. Mm -hmm. So I had a, a question on one of my videos one time about chat GPT and how I thought Lacan's notions of symbolic and imaginary relate to that. And I think I might have a similar response to this question. Um, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know if I can speak to gamification um, too much, but I can I can say that I I mean, Twitter is a good example of the um, overlapping dialectical relationship between symbolic and imaginary. Right. We have mm -hmm. this algorithm that is guiding what is how the content is produced and um, and there. And even though we think that's done sort of autonomously, and there is a degree of autonomy, uh, Lacan speaks of the symbolic as being like a machine, right? In seminar two, and I think that's a 
that's a good ex that that actually applies well to the the way in which the algorithm works. In fact, Lacan works through some algorithms in his uh, in that seminar to illustrate the symbolic. But yet there is also this big other, which and the big other is in a sense part of the symbolic, but also has its foot in the real. <laughs> and and I think uh, this is where you have certain you have people, concrete people, who are just making decisions about what data to feed the algorithm, uh, what what are some of the weights and uh, weights is going to give certain content, and 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 so it directs the symbolic in a certain way to structure the content. So I think that's all. So I think that's one level of thinking about uh, Twitter on um, uh, on a. Lacanian perspective, and then there's the the imaginary content, right? Is everything that we think Twitter is about, uh, what what are both in terms of the content it produces and what we get focused on and fixated on, as well as what we think Twitter is doing in in its function within society and all the meanings we impute upon that. So I think those sort, and we we tend to be very fixated on the content, you know, as like oh someone let out this this tweet and we get constantly like little like dogs chasing squirrels trying to find the next bit of meaning um, and uh, and getting attached to it getting agitated you know the imaginary is a place of love and hate <laughs> is where that gets expressed uh, often and um, and so that's all happening on the surface level and we miss this underlying symbolic algorithm and the and the big other who is sort of um, whose law is governing this process do you do you think that this that this uh impacts or or precludes it from from being true or genuine discourse or is this just what we must accept as our our epistem or you know our our situation uh this is this is discourse now we are we are stuck with either gamified communication or nothing or say algorithmically curated communication or mm -hmm. nothing. I would say I'm not so sure it's different. <laughs> I'm I'm not so sure it's different than how things how our communication has been. Uh, I think we 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 get into the sometimes we can get it fall into this lament of some past. A history where there was true discourse and and now now it's been sabotaged by these the these this technology and i'm I'm not quite sure i always i uh, even when you know even when I was a teenager I always had trouble with with conversation because I saw it as so superficial and so uh um artific <laughs> artificial <laughs> and we have these sort of predetermined ways of talking to people and and our brain, and we can even think about the brains as sort of wired toward uh, elevating certain information and uh, and downplaying certain information like an algorithm, and and then there's a whole symbolic world going on underneath. So, I I if anything, Twitter in my eyes makes explicit what is then the implicit expression of discourse predating mm -hmm. the the rise of social media. I'm sure there are other things we things we could talk about in terms of changes. So it's not exactly the same, but uh, I actually would want to. First, my first move is to point out this, the the similarities between now and then. <laughs> um, 
and then uh, and then maybe work from there to look at some of the differences. Awesome, thank you. I want to uh, just throw in that I don't roll my eyes at you for that reason, Adam. I roll my eyes at you because you're funny looking. No, uh, it's it's not that at all. It's it's that. Um, I want to experiment with gamification, so I'm going to. Um, that's not to say it's not harmful. As, and as far as I think the more important thing that Brian's getting to is that this is a part of our reality prior to its rise on Twitter. But I want to speak to your facticity, your singularity of being basically like a feral child. You are not institutionalized, right? And so the gamification of platforms that we appear on through the internet mirrors the gamification of institutionalized incentive structures that a lot of people were subjectivized into as children, right? And so that was, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about that. And uh, anyway, I just, that, that was my thing. But um, Nance, you got anything? So I trying to nail down intentionality um, as opposed to care does does intentionality rest on agency or does it give rise to agency? I I would I guess the way I would say it, it's agency in relationship to what is being acted on. <laughs> so it is it, so it is in agency, but it's always agency in relationship to something. Um, so, and you can have different ways of relating to objects. I can, you know, I can treat uh, someone as a, um, as a commercial transaction. I can treat someone as a lover. I can treat someone as, uh, there's all, you know, I can care for them. I can desire them. I can hate them. There's all these intentionalities that I, that are, or intentional acts that I uh, engage in. Um, and it, but it's always in relationship to a content. And so I think if you mean agent as somehow separate from the thing it's acting on, then no, I don't think that is what Husserl means by intentionality. But so long as you think of the inextricable relationship, the object for subject relationship that is in, that cannot be broken up any further, that's intentionality. Thank you. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Brian. How you doing? Good. Good to see you. Good, good. I don't know how much I missed uh, as far as, like, uh, who asked what. But, um, yeah, Dave mentioned in the beginning that I had a question last night during uh, the post-talk about uh, being in time and history, the concept of time. Uh, my question was, um, in relation to Heidegger, and uh, whenever he has any criticisms of Kant, is it always within Kant's framework of a transcendental uh, critique and transcendental idealism itself? Or is it sort of the appropriation of Kant by the Marburg School, which uses Kant uh, as um, 
not back to the like you know not trying to get at the thing in itself but more about the conditions of possibility of scientific knowledge and scientific experience mm -hmm. i would i would say that it's definitely both um i think from what i try i'm trying to recall now because there are critiques that heidegger levels against kant and i'll try to recall them off as best i can but um in many ways i i would see heidegger as agreeing with husserl in terms of his critique of kant i believe that the kant in the separation of the noumenal and the phenomenal right that this idea that you can you have to make this distinction that that's problematic that the that uh, f that in going back to the things themselves in phenomenology, which is something that I think Heidegger provides one of the best descriptions of in the introduction, phenomenology is it. There's no thing behind it, uh, and and so we in going back to the things themselves, we go back to the phenomena. Now for he Heidegger, this means um, ontology, uh, means hermeneutics, uh, looking at things in those lights. But um, but fundamentally, there is no no dichotomy, and that the the exit and that the existentials, even though they are considered sort of they're almost on par with Kantian a priori, they are not internal to any subject. There isn't no, there. Heidegger wants to get rid of any notion of a transcendental subject of a, tra a transcendental ego, whether it's the variant of Kant or the variant of Husserl, um, that all those are derivative. Of a more fundamental situation, um, and um, I think this is something I haven't talked about yet. But Kant is very much focused on sort of the intellectual processing uh, and uh, of information, right? So affectivity has is there, but it's sort of it's not. It's I think it's relegated to the aesthetic and or sensibility, and it's uh, not a primary existential. It's not a primary category for Kant. Whereas for Heidegger, moods are fundamental. Moods are a, a fundamental way of relating to the world, and and so and that's something you don't see in Kant at all. So not that there's an explicit critique of Kant there, but I think there's an implicit one. No, that makes sense. And I like how you pointed out mood because I was thinking the same thing of like, uh, or like modes of being, right? Which is like authenticity and inauthenticity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Kant, Kant doesn't do much to recognize uh, the, in the in the embeddedness of our of our of our being in the world. Um, there, there is a. There's none of that uh, recognition um, that we start off in that and then we emerge out of that to reflect upon our possibilities. So none of those are, are or at least they're not explicit in Kant in, 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 as far as the critique of pure reason. I'm sure some, if there's a Kantian scholar, I'm sure I'm going to get something <laughs> about, oh, actually in, these, in, the, uh, in this work, he says that. But you know, for the most part, the standard telling of Kant, and that's one the one I'm going off of, uh, lacks a lot of those features. And I really want to underscore affectivity is that's one of the major contributions of of Heidegger over Husserl. Husserl still preserves that sort of rationalistic dimension of knowledge that Kant had, and I think this is to me 
this is and this is the, why I actually talked about the example of love and and uh, and you know pr talking about how love opens up something about that's lovable in my wife that I can discover. That's I mean draw right out of Heidegger. I mean Heidegger the moods even though Heidegger doesn't talk about love, he talks about moods that uh, are they're not just feelings, they're ways of opening up possibilities of existence. They're fundamental ways of opening up possibilities uh, of existence. And and so and that's a form of knowledge that so few um thinkers have had really considered up to that point. Maybe Pascal was like um, one of the first. Mikey wrote an article called, oh, watch, I should pull it up because I don't remember exactly what it's called, but the dangerous maybe uh, Ben Shapiro Heidegger. Basically, oh, it's called Facts and Feelings. Yeah, and so I'll put that up on the screen. It's called Facts and Feelings, a Heideggerian critique of Ben Shapiro. We're basically... I mean, and the fact is, is we can give the devil his due and say, yeah, there are facts and people do have to, you know, face up to facts sometimes. Um, but there is an enjoyment in sharing certain facts to certain people in certain situations in certain ways, right? And the enjoyment to be had, it can be a vile one. And sometimes uh, the Shapiro mode is, is definitely one of, of a kind of jouissance that's getting an enjoyment at, at another person's expense, just giving facts. But what he focuses on in this piece is moods, the fundamental orientation that we have towards the world through mood and how it's the mood that brings those facts to light for us, right? Um, not just those facts to light, Right in the in in terms of appearance, but also the way that we organize them, the way that they are structured symbolically, via like our master signifier and all of these other things. When we get into ideology critique, so I guess the question that I've been dying to ask you, though, um, and, and by the way, everybody else, this is your time. I'm only ask, I'm 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 asking a question to fill time here, but I do want you all to kind of be a part of this conversation if you want to, so you don't have to turn off your cameras or anything like that, um, but. My question is basically about the gaze mm -hmm. and mood and how they are related. Because to me, it mm -hmm. seems like the only way I can make sense of Lacanian gaze is mm -hmm. through Heideggerian mood. But mm -hmm. if that's an analogy that is causing going to cause me more confusion down the road, mm -hmm. then then mm -hmm. you should you should correct me right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, the no, I mean, the notion of a gaze is uh, is very interesting, um, and actually, I had it written down somewhere. I was thinking about bringing it up because when we're talking about intentionality, the gaze is a unique kind of phenomenon because it's not something we have. It's not a it's not a mental content. It's not. It doesn't give itself in in any way. But it's 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 a what what uh, what. Uh, Maybe Levinas, but definitely Jean-Luc Marion talk about as a reverse intentionality, a counter intentionality, where I become the phenomenon, the, the, the mental content of someone else's mental act. And this is a uh, this is a fundamental reorientation of the notion of, of intentionality to be uh, to be on the other end <laughs> of it. And um, so in that that. You see this, so you see that notion in Sartre. You see this in the face in Levinas, uh, and it's, and so that's a very go ahead. 
it's, it, I'm sorry to cut you off, but like I, I, uh, I almost are we confusing kinds of gaze here because I understand that the phenomenological mm-hmm. idea of gaze, you know, with where where Sartre is talking about the person mm-hmm. who kind of interpolates you because you're you're you mm-hmm. feel you feel like you're being watched when you get caught being a voyeur or whatever. Uh, that it, it uh, that makes sense as a reverse intentionality, mm-hmm. finding yourself mm-hmm. as the object, but. I took gaze in mm. the Lacanian sense to be like a radical departure from that where yes. uh, I'll use McGowan talking about the cinema, right? He talks about how everything that works in, in what is being shown to you, it, it, it actually works because it is, it's you, it's pointing, it's pointing you out in like this way that like, it, it shows you something about your unconscious and what it's, seeking or, or something like that but I, mm-hmm. I can't I have a really hard time articulating it but it seems like uh, I, I do think that this is supposed to be radically different from the Sartrean Levinasian mm-hmm. Merleau-Pontian type of yes. gaze so okay you were already probably going to clarify this so yeah so I it, that was sort of a parenthetical comment that I got that got provoked because I was thinking about this beforehand but yeah so I I meant to transition from that parenthetical okay, sorry about okay. that sometimes okay, I okay. thoughts go tangential I like that yeah. but um that's why I need a script when I talk because <laughs> I often have trouble being linear in my my sure, presentation sure. otherwise but um I uh, but then yeah then you're absolutely right the Lacanian gaze is something very different right okay, it's okay. uh and this is I actually working through GGX the parallax you it's actually been very helpful for me to think about um, uh, the notion of gaze, um, because in as I'm right now, my my next video is working is going to be on chapter one of the parallax view, and he talks a lot about the subject-object relation and how uh, and and thinks about it in terms of the uh, uh, the parallax view and the minimal difference and the way in which the object, the you know the sublime object, it. It both is other than me, but it also contains something in me. There's a there's a blind spot. There's a stain in the object that is something that is in a sense looking back at me, and that it is my it is the gaze, the internal gaze. I I, I way I understood it is sort of like we internalize like the eagle ideal and the and um, the superego and all that but and that gaze that we have internalized is then discovered in the things that we see out there in the world um and that we find it looking back at us and this this is a uh, I, and i'm correct me if you if there's a you think that that's not representing it well but um i i think that is a very I, that's another way of of thinking about the relationship between subject object that's different. I think this is a very different from the phenomenological point of view. I would have I'd have to think about how to reconcile. Um, yeah, that's that's that's. I guess the the connection then from from Heidegger's uh, mood, which is I, I think mood's like a little downstream from f- the fundamental term that gets translated poorly as state of mind, right? Which is like there's yeah. those those three primary uh, I don't want to call them registers, but they're kind of mm-hmm. like registers. Which is like there's 
uh, state of mind, uh, is it uh, discourse and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, understanding, right? Like, and that's mm -hmm. kind of Kantian understanding. But basically, mm -hmm. what what Heidegger does in being in time is he takes that Kantian understanding and he puts it on a equa primordial basis with mm -hmm. discourse and state of mind. And so, mm -hmm. you know, and, and then obviously, like we have like those those are these are like existentials. These are like existential structures yeah. of being in the world. But then, like, there's the derivative existential uh, uh, ontic manifestations of these things, right? And so the 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 derivative uh, average everyday uh, existential of discourse is idle chatter, right? Mm -hmm. But just because you, as a teenager, were well aware, idle chatter is annoying. Uh, doesn't mean that it's useless. And more importantly, it shows us something. It shows us that there is a possibility of another kind of discourse, a higher order discourse. And so that's the kind of structure he's trying to get at. Anyway, putting those all on an equiprimordial basis is I think one of his greatest innovations. Um, but so anyway, state of mind, mood, uh, various moods as a sort of uh, existential, uh, ontic, uh, manifestation of the fundamental state of mind. Um, point being that what is revealed, what we see, uh, is is coming from that, right? And, but this yeah. isn't this isn't for individuals who are feeling anxious today. This is mm -hmm. just as much for uh, how everyone felt going through COVID. There was a mm -hmm. feeling in the air, and 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 something that everyone was going through. Now, different people had their different existential ontic modifications of that but the overall state of mind was this was was the zeitgeist that people were going through right and so i i am only unpacking this all to to, to hopefully see well yeah to see if i'm doing a good job or not mm -hmm. and then finally to see so bringing it back to gaze my question is, is if if it's like that's showing us something about like our libidinal economy it, you know it, and it seems like mood is the same thing. Like the things that we're caring mm -hmm. about, the things that mm -hmm. we're seeing that we're dealing with, it's also telling us something about, about what's lighting up the world, what, what's at the basis of that. So it's, that's, I guess, the similarity there. But yeah, mm -hmm. it, would, it seems complicated. To no, I, I, thank you for clarifying. I it clicked uh, when you were talking. Um, I'm trying to... It's, it seems like there'll be, there's something there. I, I, I haven't actually thought about this. So it's actually a very interesting and, and unique idea about mood and, and the, and the Lacanian gaze. Um, and it would make sense, the connections you're making that, uh, the way a mood sort of reveals things, discloses things to me, uh, would parallel the way in which the gaze in the, uh, I encounter the gaze in the Lacanian sense. I feel like there's something, something doesn't sit right with me on this comparison. Right. And I think it's, it's I think, I think I, if I'm thinking from Heidegger's perspective, there's a discomfort here with the, you know, cause I think because, and perhaps my discomfort is around the notions of the subject that okay. Heidegger is so uncomfortable with the idea of subjectivity. He's so, he's so allergic to that term. And yet that it's hard to think about these Lacanian ideas without evoking the subject good that you'd have that we'd have to think through that part um because uh 
because that is because uh, and the, the, there's the idea of the unconscious too, which doesn't play the same role in Heidegger and 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 being in time. So I think it's it's an idea worth exploring. I hadn't really considered it. I think there are some complications that would have to be worked through. So I guess that's all I could say without over talking it. No, that's can that's, I, that's great. Yeah, Ed, uh, uh, Andrew. I was gonna say, can I add on something about the gaze? Because like one thing, if there is a mood, it would probably be anxiety, if anything, with mm -hmm. the encounter of the gaze. But I was thinking about it. It's like um, Samuel McCormick of uh lectures on Lacan talks about how like with the gaze because like in seminar one he'll uh trend like he'll overcome like the Sartrean notion of the gaze because it falls too much in the uh dichotomy or not dichotomy but it falls too much in the imaginary register of like as you were saying Dave about like being interpolated like oh I, I'm being seen like I'm this peeping Tom right like it's not that the uh I see the person and the person sees me, but I see them seeing me, right? That's the sort of imaginary narcissistic relationship. With the gaze, it has to do with the real. And if there is a mood, it's an anxiety. And how the real applies is that when we look at the subject or the split subject, it is always trying to account for itself in the symbolic and Im imaginary dichotomy, right? In this dialectic. And we look at this in uh, Freud's dream, Urban's Ejection, where when he uh, looks down at her throat, he can't account for what he sees, him being the subject, the split subject. There is no mirror that has uh, a mirroring back for an ego to instantiate an imaginary relationship. So you're left with a void, uh, less than nothing, pretty much. And so that's where the gaze of the real is encountering because it's like the, the object that stares back at you you can't develop that mirror stage or that ego, uh, ego ideal. It's you're left with just pretty much, uh, the for lack of a better term, the real, that the void. I don't know if that helps. I'd like but, to like, hear it. Pretty I much like the, the, the lack. You're encountering your lack, which is just a structure without content. So... Todd in the in the cinema book, which is basically about gaze, um, talks about how when you're, it's it's I think it's the lack in your desire specifically, right? Yes, because, yes. Because because, because desire every, structure like a language, there's no content. The ego ideal to be able to kind of ground that, right? Because what is the ego? But another a mirroring. So the way we relate our our ego ideals. But right. in an encounter with your traumatic reality, the trauma, it does not have, you're encountering the subject, the split subject of the unconscious encounters its own lack. There's no ego for it to identify with. And so that's what's so frightening because it's like this empty gaze that is of your desire. Okay. So and I, I apologize for constantly bringing up Todd's book. The only reason I'm doing this right now. And obviously everybody loves Todd here, but the reason I just keep bringing it up is because I've been profoundly confused about gays and Mikey complicated it for me by sharing his confusion about it. Um, and so then I read the introduction to Todd's book and I've been confused ever since. Like I, I was like, but, but I think it's kind of through these conversations and stuff gelling a little bit for me to where 
the, the basic idea is that as far as using Lacanian gaze for film analysis, as opposed to the feminist gaze uh, and that kind of tradition, um, which obviously is the most prominent in American uh, cinema theory, it it's it's about it, instead of just looking like oh see uh, every every woman as well as every desirable object because women are being reduced to de desirable objects portrayed on the screen is portrayed in such a way so as to prop up the ego of the the masculine the primarily like male viewership in this kind of superior um, consumer role, um, which is like uh, obviously valid. And a, and a useful way of thinking about things, but the this Lacanian gaze approach, which Joan Kopchak is is so important for for bringing into things, um, in I think it's in Read My Desire, right? Um, applied to cinema the way McGowan does it, it's like there are like four fundamental kind of categories. He 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 draws like a grid of classification here for different kinds of movies or films. Ones that frustrate desire in a specific way, ones that try to fulfill, uh, ones that don't, they try to ingratiate it in a certain way. But they're all, insofar as they work or, or whatever, like how they might work, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fill that out. Um, and and I, I have to read the rest of the book and then reread it and then have a real conversation with Todd. And my, my question about gaze was hoping for some, some clarification on if it has a relation to phenomenology and what that might be, I think that what we have here is like why there might be some kind of similarity, but also more importantly, why that similarity would lead us astray if we took it too seriously. And now I want to get away from Lacan and bring it right back to phenomenology and kind of let Brian uh, close this thing out because I, I know we've, we've kept him about the length that he had agreed to um, when he said he had about 15 to 20 minutes for Q and A. So, um, I, I guess I would just ask you to share any uh, final thoughts and and kind of uh, make your plugs for your books and your channel and all of that. Yeah. So, I, I, first off, I appreciate this, Dave. I really, uh, I'm excited to do this, uh, uh, to get involved in these conversations. I really like I what I'm seeing here on YouTube. Um, when I'm working on an essay that actually in light of our conversation about that special work that you're putting together today with uh, different authors, trying to put together an essay where I'm really reflecting on what we're doing here and what this means in light of the history of philosophy. Cause it's just so, I think we are really getting back to an age uh, in which there were there was philosophy without schools <laughs> and, and, and that prior to the institutionalization of philosophy. So there's something really, about getting back to the roots of philosophy that is happening and thinking this work that you're that you're facilitating here um so I'm, I'm, you know i think everyone knows my channel is singularity as sublimity um and uh yeah i am not sure what else i want to plug but um i think uh I think this notion of intentionality has a lot of fruit that we, uh, fruitful directions that we can consider. I think we hadn't even gotten to, uh, I sort of alluded to it, intentionality uh, in Levinas, uh, Sartre, right? Merleau-Ponty, and, and who really takes up intentionality as comportment a great deal. I think there's a lot 
I think that one way of reading the history of phenomenology is the history of interpretations of intentionality <laughs> and what they do with it. Yes. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, uh, and I think it was Paul Ricoeur who said that phenomenology is the, is the series of heresies of Husserl. <laughs> and, uh, and that I think is true. It's a series of deviations from Husserl's interpretation of intentionality into all sorts of realms, all the way to uh, Michel Henry, whose notion of, uh, of flesh and materiality um, is an attempt to show the derivativeness of intentionality in a very different way than, than Heidegger did. So, and then of course, the, the more recent phenomenologists and uh, Levinas would be included in sort of this group of those who've been very interested in the notion of the re of reverse intentionality. So, um, and how, Levinas develops a whole uh, develops an ethics in relationship to this, so uh, I think there's a lot of fruitful directions to keep considering with that idea. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and I look forward to future dialogue. And uh, I really hope to see, uh, yeah, what you're what you're coming up with here. So, thank you, thank you all. Take care. Good to see you again, Brian. Have a good, good day. To see you, Andrew. You too. Bye, Nance. Bye, Adam. And now a quick message from our sponsors. Just kidding. This will be neither quick nor from any corporate or state sponsorship. What follows is a description of Theory Underground, a thank you to its patrons, information about the upcoming tour, and three brand new courses that you might want to enroll in. Stay for the whole thing to get promo codes to save on those courses or information about the financial aid scholarship. Theory Underground is a philosophy lecture course gated social media site and publishing house by and for working class intellectuals and renegade academics. The subject matters dealt with at Theory Underground are the most important, yet neglected, for understanding ourselves, the world, and ways of possibly changing it. Because we have no corporate or state sponsors, only a small band of patrons, everything in this first year of operation helps immensely. Special thank yous to Bert, Nance, Marilyn, Carl, and Adam for your help in the $50 per month patron tier. If you want to help but the $50 tier is too much, Consider donating towards Meals and Gasoline via Venmo or PayPal. The Gasoline is for our countrywide tour of the U.S., where we aim to meet with supporters of this effort and do events to draw in new people who do not necessarily belong to marketing demographics predetermined by the attention economy. We will be giving lectures, leading discussions, and promoting several brand new books. Our goal is to only go to towns and cities where we have personal invitations from at least one person. We are doing this underground style, which for the hardcore punk scene in the US meant coming for long enough to get to know the area and do multiple events, not this modern treadmill of a new city each night in an attempt to maximize fame and profit. If you are interested in being a host, guide, or volunteer, then please fill out the form at https colon forward slash forward slash theory hyphen underground.com forward slash us hyphen tour hyphen 2023.
In an attempt to utilize the resources made publicly available, we will be using libraries for most of our events. So if you have a local library card and can reserve a space for us, we would most appreciate it. Alternatively, some of you might have access to pretty epic venue spaces. Just let us know ahead of time. Now for the courses. The three upcoming courses are What is Sex, Digital Literacy and CMT, Critical Media Theory, and Being in Time. All courses at Theory Underground are available after the fact on demand, but some people get a lot more out of doing it live with a cohort. If you are looking to think deeply about the devices we have become reliant on while experimenting with new ways of reclaiming your attention span and relationship with yourself and others, then check out Digital Literacy and Critical Media Theory, a course that is structured to combat the attention economy while strategically using some of its tools to help us gain a freer relationship to our devices. If interested, an introduction to this course will be shared at the end of this video. Just make sure to click on it. The lectures for this course take place on the second Sunday of every month for six months, starting in May. If you sign up at Tier 3, you also get access to the Recovery Group component, which also meets once per month. Enroll with promo code CMTEARLYBIRDYT before May 13th for 20% off. If you are frustrated by the discourse revolving around gender ideology, left and right, then join us in thinking deeper about sex. Cadell Last of Philosophy Portal is joining up with Theory Underground to teach Alenka Zupanchik's What is Sex? one of the most succinct and cutting-edge works of theory dealing with the topic. Zupanchik is one of the Slovenian circle's most incisive critics of both naive progressivism and reactionary tendencies when it comes to thinking about the relationship between sex, culture, and subjectivity. If interested, watch Three Reasons to Read What is Sex, which will be shared on screen at the end of this video. What is Sex begins in May and goes through June, meeting for four lecture sessions and, surprise, you will actually get to meet Alenka Zupanchik herself. Use promo code WHATISSEXEARLYBIRDYT before May 7th for 20% off. And just so you know, everybody, don't stress the capitalization. I just make it that way so it's more readable. It's not case sensitive. Being in time is one of the most notorious, profound, and difficult works of philosophy from the last 200 years. Its deconstruction of modernity and fundamental challenge to scientism is a prerequisite rite of passage for any thinker who wants to seriously engage with continental philosophy, social theory, or world change. In this course, you will learn about what Heidegger means by being, being in the world, Dasein, being unto death, and so many other crucial developments. But more important than all these buzzwords is just taking on this work itself and wrestling with the text. Doing so will rapidly accelerate your reading comprehension abilities and simultaneously challenge some of your most deep-seated presuppositions. As before, an introductory video to this course is shared on the end screen of this video or can be accessed from the links in the description. Being in Time Division 1 starts in June and ends July 22nd. Division 2 begins August 19th and goes through October. To sign up for Division 1 today, use the promo code BEINGINTIMEEARLYBIRDYT before the end of May for 20% off. If you feel obstructed by the cost of these courses, then we have good news! But before getting into the financial aid info, why are there even price tags at all, much less tiered pricing? First, because some people just want to audit, whereas others want constructive critical feedback 
or even one-on-one -on -one sessions. The tiers exist so that you can get the value you are seeking while compensating me, Dave, fairly for the time and energy required. Second, the prices set for these courses aim to make Theory Underground sustainable, meaning that it will bring in enough to pay for the costs of the operation, including my personal bills since I want to be a co-earner in the household when my soon-to-be wife and I start a family. <laughs> Thirdly, <laughs> Thirdly, People tend to take the things they pay for more seriously, and we want you to get the most out of this experience. With those reasons aside, we do not seek to exclude anyone who is struggling just to get by. We have a financial aid scholarship option for people who are currently between jobs or who live in a country on a cheap currency, like many of you who watch from Thailand, India, Mexico, or Poland. To name a few of the residents of some of the people who have already received financial aid scholarships in the last couple of months. Because I know what trying to study theory under the stresses of housing insecurity and poverty is like, the scholarship was set up during the first month of operation. Simply fill it out at https colon forward slash forward slash theory hyphen underground dot com forward slash scholarship. Last but not least, stay tuned for the Theory Underground app coming soon to an app store near you on your phone. Yeah, and seriously, thank you for listening or watching to this point. And uh, yeah. Thanks. We look forward to taking these courses with you. Bye.